0: Wow, that song is so powerful, isn't it? Uh, Just That's exactly what we're talking about today, is that Jesus told a story, and it was the story of basically saying there is a judgment day coming, and that we're all going to face it. And uh, what will matter, what will determine our eternal destiny, will be the choice we made about Him. And so we're going to look at that today, and it's a very sobering story as we look at it. Uh, many of Jesus' parables and the stories that he taught had deep meaning and uh, most of them were intended to confront uh, cultural views of his day and to uh, share deeper truths about the kingdom of God and so, uh, much of the time, that his stories kind of caught people by surprise and knocked them off of their, you know, their center of gravity because he wanted to change their views and move them in another direction. So that's what is going to happen in a story we're going to look at today. So if you would go ahead and grab your message notes out of your program, and you can follow along. I've got all the Bible verses that are uh, we'll look at. You can open your Bible to Luke 16. Uh, that's where we're going to be today. Luke 16. Uh, verse 19, as we'll start off. And if you picked up a lobby Bible, you can turn it to page 799. That's where you'll find Luke chapter 16. And uh, we're in this story called the Jesus stories as we're looking at parables that he taught. And uh, when he taught stories, when he told stories, his stories captured the hearts of ordinary people. And we'd say, hey, that's who we are, just ordinary people. You see, we all cry, you know, once in a while, and that's ordinary, okay? So it's okay. There you go. So we all do that. We all have times when that happens. In fact, I was doing that last night. <laughs> <Another Saturday. laughs> Oh okay here we go. So when when Jesus was talking he taught these stories and it, they were all designed to have this deeper meaning and capture our hearts. Uh, as Brett said earlier that Jesus said in Matthew 7:24 he says that anyone who hears my words and listens then they will understand and then if they build my word their lives on my words it will be like building their lives on solid ground and they'll build a solid life but if they don't build my life on my words then it'll be be like building my life on sand, on shifting sands, and it'll be a foolish way to build life. Now, this is what he says about his parables. He says this in Matthew Matthew 13. He says, Jesus told many stories in the form of parables such as this one. And then this is what he said. He says, anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. And that's what I would ask us to do for the parable we're looking at today. In fact, if we would, if we just bow our heads, I want to ask us to pray for a moment. God, we come before you. Jesus, we ask you now to be our teacher. We want to put aside as best as we can any barriers that would keep us, any hindrances that would keep us from hearing from you today. Pray that you would speak, and that as you speak, that we would listen, and that we would respond, and that we would realize the the sobriety of the topic of the day, and that each one of us would be challenged at the point where we would make a choice uh, to live life differently by what we hear. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So last week, Pastor Rick talked to us, and he talked about the parable of the shrewd manager or the shrewd steward, and in that was uh, this verse where Jesus said as part of his parable, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, just like in our crowd last week, there were probably those who didn't, you know, stand up and applaud for that message, for those words from Jesus. And Jesus' crowd, the same thing happened. In fact, uh, as we go from where we left off last week in chapter 16 to where we're going to come this week in chapter 16, there's a few verses of interlude there. And I just want to read to you some of the comment that was made by those who were listening to Jesus' words as he spoke them. This is what it says. It says, the Pharisees, remember he says, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who dearly loved their money heard all this and scoffed at him. They, you know, wanted to just say, you know, hey, what's he, you know, what's he talking about? You know, and they wanted to deny him in some way. So Jesus said to them, you, took it at the Pharisees, you like to appear righteous in public, but God knows your hearts. And then he launches in to the story we're going to look at today about the rich man And Lazarus. Jesus realized that not everyone who heard that first story applauded him and responded affirmatively to his words about the shrewd manager. So he tells another story, just back to back, to help those who were in danger of losing their very souls to know that God is not pleased with outward expressions that aren't consistent with an inward change that he's done in their lives. He's not pleased with that. He's not. Pleased with outward manifestations that don't come from a transformed or a changed heart. And so he tells this story. So, what I want to do, a little different than what we've done so far in the series, is I want to read this story. And in order to help us understand context and how the people who were hearing it understood it, I want to make some commentary as I go. Remember, in every story, what we're choosing to do in this series is we're looking for the main point uh, and we're trying to drive home the main point of the story. Parables are not allegories. You can't look at a parable and get meaning from every piece of it. You have to look for the main point that Jesus was trying to make. And that's what we're doing in this series. So here we go. It says this. Jesus said, there was a certain man, who, rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen who lived each day in luxury. Let's just pause there and let's talk about the rich man for a moment. Why does Jesus have the rich man in his story dressed in purple? Because in this day, everyone who was listening to the story, they would know purple is the most expensive cloth that you can have. The dye that it would take to dye something purple was the most expensive dye that was made in that day. It was made from these little bitty tiny snail shells that they'd grind all these little snail shells up. They were hard to come by, and it took a lot of the shells to be able to have the color purple. So when they made someone, said someone was wearing purple, it meant that they had the bucks. They had the bucks. They could lay it out, they knew how to dress. They were very, very important. It's a sign of extreme wealth. So when this rich man, he would go to his closet every day, he would throw back the curtain of his closet, and he would look inside at all of his garments there, and he goes, I think I'll choose purple. That's because everything in his closet was purple. Purple okay, I think I'll choose purple. It says he wore purple every day and he would go out. He didn't understand the whole thing about your colors and how you're supposed to look, but he just did this because it was important to wear purple. So everyone didn't know how much he had. It also says that he had fine linens. And when we talk about here, we're talking about, and it's referring to fine Egyptian cotton that was used in undergarments that no one would see. Now, in their day, I think that they probably hid their undergarments, not like we do in our day, Uh, but I think they probably hid their undergarments, but I'm not sure how people actually knew that he wore silk boxers, expensive boxers, but he did, and he made sure people knew that he wore these expensive boxers, or they wouldn't have known. It wouldn't have been part of the story. Jesus also says that the rich man lived each day. Would you circle that? Each day in luxury, meaning that every day that people would cater to his every whim, his every need, and they did it with extravagance. It was always over the top. It was gourmet gourmet meals, the best of drinks, the best of massages, the best of candles, the best of ointments, the best of incense. He had it all, and he had his luxury seven days a week. People would cater to him seven days a week. Now, part of what that says about him is that he didn't allow those who worked for him to honor the Sabbath. Because seven days a week, he had to be cared for so that his needs would come before them even honoring God in their lives. Now, that's the rich man, okay? That's going to set that up, but it's a story of contrast. Now, let's look at the poor man. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. So, totally different. We're now shifting way contrast to the other side. As Lazarus lay there longing from scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick is open sores. So we're making this strong contrast between the rich man and the poor man. If you understand the, the the way that the Bible was written in the Greek, it actually talks about here that the poor man, this poor man didn't like, you know, get up every day and say, okay, what am I doing today? Oh yeah, the rich man's house. And he would make his way to the rich man's house. But literally he was not able to get to the rich man's house. And so his friends would put him in a cart and they would haul him by the rich man's house. And the way it was verbalized there, they literally threw him out of the cart threw him out of the cart, and they would say, you know, we'll come back at the end of the day, and we'll come to get you. But they were on their way, and he would lay there hoping that he would get crumbs from the rich man's table. Now, in Jesus' day, they didn't use cloth napkins. In Jesus' day, they ate with their hands. I think they do that in my day at our house. That's kind of where it is. (laughs) I was thinking about that this I was doing this first service, and my son was sitting in the back back there, and thinking about last night's dinner, okay, that <laughs> they ate with their hands, and they didn't have cloth napkins. So what they would do is, those who were wealthy, is that they would have servants who would bake them bread, and the bread would be beside them, and as their hands got dirty, as they were wanting to clean their hands, they would tear off a chunk of bread, they would you know wipe their hands on the bread, and they'd throw it over their shoulder onto the floor, and then the servants would come back later and pick it up, and Lazarus was laying out there hoping every day that he could just sit some crumbs of bread that had been used to clean the hands of of the people who are eating this awesome gourmet food. thats kind of what's going on. That's what he's hoping for, hoping to get. Now, this is a good time for me to just do a timeout here and talk to those of you who are saying, okay, was Lazarus real or was he a fictional character? Now, I know there's a lot of people that go on both sides of this whole fence about whether Lazarus was a real person or whether he was a fictional character. Debates have been gone on for centuries. And um, what I want to say today is this is, where I, this is where I've landed. Now, I've done a lot of reading this week, and I've got people that are on both sides. I've landed to where I believe it was a fictional character, a fictional character, Lazarus, and as we look at this, and it's kind of odd even, why would Jesus even use a name? Well, the, we're going to see the reason I believe it's a fictional character and why Jesus actually gave this person a name. And all of his parables, the only person that's ever mentioned by name is Lazarus. And so the honest answer is we just don't know why Jesus named the guy, okay? We just don't know why. That's the honest answer, just to be honest. But there are clues along the way that I believe can help us to understand exactly why he called him Lazarus. And the first one is this. Here we go. The name Lazarus. The word Lazarus means, the meaning behind the name is, the one God helps. So Jesus chose the name of this one who's now on the side, who can do nothing on his own. His name is the one God's helper. It could be this way, the one who looks to God for help. So he's designated the poor man now as the one who has placed his faith in God the one who has placed his faith in what God can do for him, no matter what his physical circumstances, no matter what his health is like, he's saying, I'm gonna place my faith in the one who can help me. And that's the biggest difference we have right up front between the rich man and the poor man. It wasn't the fact that the rich man had all this and, the, and that Lazarus had nothing. The biggest fact is the rich man was helping himself. The rich man was helping himself. He didn't need God he didn't need God. In fact, in his mind, I'm sure he thought that God is just pretty doggone lucky to have me on his side. So he's thinking about who he was and what he had and what he'd been able to accomplish. But Lazarus was a man who knew that he had nothing to offer God, nothing at all to offer God except his broken life, his brokenness. He knew that he was bankrupt without God. And so he bent his knee in faith before God, bent his knee in faith, while the rich man kept placing all of his faith in where? Himself and what he could do and what he could accomplish and what he had accumulated. Now, in Jesus' day, just kind of heads up about how the, the Pharisees, this religious group, viewed people and their connection with God. They viewed it this way, the more you had and the healthier you were, the closer you were to God. And so he's speaking to people directly who were basing their entire connection to God on external circumstances. And the point of the parable is, is God bases our connection with him on the condition of our heart and what our heart is like. And so Jesus uses huge contrast to show us once again, throughout the Bible we see that God's not as concerned about externals as he is about the condition of, of a person's heart. Okay, there's the kind of the biggie of the parable. Now let's go on. Finally, the poor man died. So we're going to move into another scene here. The poor man dies and was carried by the angels to be with Abraham. So immediately, those who are listening to the story, as they're hearing, if health and wealth are the indicators of your connection to God, when Lazarus dies and he doesn't go to the place down under, but immediately he goes to paradise, they're like, Okay, it's the first wake-up call in the story for them in a huge way. It kind of knocks them off their kilter a little bit. And then it says this, The rich man also died and was buried, and this soul went to the place of the dead. I thought, as soon as they said that, he started going, Time out, time out, everybody in the room, time out, Jesus. This is not the way it's supposed to be. He goes on to talk about the rich man then. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side the rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. So Jesus has given us some idea about the condition of those who were separated from God for eternity. And this is what Abraham, but Abraham said to him, son, remember, would you circle that word? Remember, this is key to us today and being able to end our lives without regret is remembering. Remember that during your lifetime, you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted and you are in anguish. And besides, there's a great chasm separating us. Underline that great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here and no one can cross over to us from there. Then the rich man said, please, father Abraham. He wasn't begging to get out. He wasn't begging you to get out. He says, please, Father Abraham, at least send Lazarus to my father's home, for I have five brothers, and I want them to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. Very sobering words. That they don't, too, end up in this place of torment. Doesn't life have a way of kind of leveling the field? And the way that life levels the field for all of us is death. Both men die. Both men die. Lazarus first, as the story goes, and then the rich man. Now, Lazarus, when he died, immediately, both men, their spirits left their bodies, so they both died, but Lazarus died first, and immediately his spirit left his body and went to paradise. His body... More than likely, because people in his day who were in his condition had no no place to be buried or no money for a burial plot or anything like that, they were literally put in a cart, hauled outside the city gates to the place called Gehenna, or the dump, and their bodies were burned. More than likely, his body was just burned on a garbage dump in a garbage heap. The rich man, on the other hand, in his condition, when he would have his memorial service, remember his spirit is no longer there. It's just a body. His body was memorialized, and his life was memorialized. They'd pay for mourners. They'd pay for this huge celebration, and they'd have all these meals and banquets and this this whole thing to memorialize him. So there's the difference of what happened at the moment that they died. Now, the the big idea, though, is not what happened to their bodies, but what happened to their spirits, that immediately each of them went to their place of their eternal destination. Once again, these guys that are listening to the story are going, no, no this, is, oh, this can't be. This is I've based all my life on what I could get. I've based all my life on making sure that I was better than or healthier than someone else. This is not the way it's supposed to be. If anything, they expected to see the rich man in heaven, and of course, by looking at Lazarus, judged him on how he looked externally, that he would be the one who was separated from God in the place of the dead, or the place called hell. But Jesus just whips the whole thing around and throws everything in a kilter for them, and I think for us too, by showing us that the rich man is the one who went to the dead, the place of the dead, or hell, and that Lazarus was the one who went to paradise, or heaven. And so what he's showing you here and he's showing me and he's showing us is that a person's eternal destiny is not determined by how much a person has or how much a person does, but is based solely on whether a person is willing to humble himself or herself before God and say, God is my help. God is my help. I need God and humbled himself to say, and I need the help that God gave through Jesus Christ on the cross. And by faith then, it's someone who by faith then says, I declare my absolute dependence on God. By faith, I ask God to show me how he wants me to live the rest of my days. That's just so interesting here that um, the rich man looks at Lazarus in paradise. He doesn't even speak to Lazarus. I mean, he didn't speak to him in life. He doesn't speak to him in death either. But he says to Abraham, he looked at Lazarus as still a servant. And he says to Abraham, so I want this servant to come dip some water and give me uh, some relief from my condition. And then when that wasn't possible, he says, well, then send this servant to warn my family because I don't want them to have the same condition that I have. But here's how the story goes then. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. So we don't need you know, Lazarus to go because they've already been warned. That's another sobering thought we'll get to later. Your brothers can we- read what they wrote. The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone has sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't even listen if someone has risen or rises from the dead. So he's saying, okay, okay. here's the deal. I'm, I know where I'm at, and I'm going to spend my eternal destiny here and I need you to go to my family because my family, if something doesn't change, all five of my brothers are going to be in the same place I am. They all believed as I did. They all believe as I do that their eternal destiny is determined by how they look, what they have, what they've done. But now I see, now that I am here, I see that that's just not true and I have to live the rest of my eternity in regret and torment because I built my one and only life on the wrong thing, on the wrong thing at all. And the way I lived my life, the values I follow, that's leading my brothers. I was the oldest, and it's leading my family to the same destination I am now. But it wasn't possible for Abraham to send Lazarus. It was too late for the rich man to do anything except live his entire eternity in regret. And what I want to do today is I want you to turn your notes on the backside, and I'm going to give you three steps or three ways that you can approach life so that you won't end your life in the same way as the rich man, but you'll end your life as the way Lazarus ended his. Three ideas. First is this if I'm going to live my life and end my life without regret, I need to remember first, remember that key word is remember, remember the permanency of eternity. And so I need to choose soberly. It's not a light thing. If I I understand the permanency of eternity and what lays in the balance by my choice while I'm alive, then I'm going to soberly consider the claims of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to choose it. I'm going to choose it based on what I know, what I understand that he said would be true. This story teaches us that Jesus is teaching the permanence of eternal decisions, the permanence of them. See, the the problem with the guy in the story, the rich guy in the story, is he never responded to the God who gave him life. So therefore, he wasn't prepared for his death when it came. Said there, remember, it said we read there, and I had you underline, it said there's a great chasm separating them. And it said that no one can cross over from you from there, and no one can cross over from, to us from there. And so what Jesus wants us to know, and what I want us to understand, is your earthly decisions determine your eternal destiny. Your earthly decisions determine your eternal destiny and then once you get there, it's fixed. It's final. There's no changing it. There's nothing you can do about it after you die. Nothing at all. And uh, even though Jesus isn't teaching this story, and some folks use this to talk about what heaven and hell are like, and you can also draw some conclusions about what heaven or hell might be like, from this story, even though Jesus isn't teaching a story to do that, one thing we can deduct from this is that heaven and hell are real places, that they're real places. They are real destination points, and everyone will end up in one place or the other. Everyone will end up in one place for the other. That's why this is so, so urgent about today, and what he's trying to teach us here, that hell is a place of torment, loneliness, regret, and in hell you have full memory of the life that you lived. And I think one of the things that you'll have full memory of as we see this man, is you'll have full memory over all the times that you heard about the need that you had to bend the knee to God and bend the knee to Jesus Christ. And every time you said no until it was too late and you breathed your last breath and you found yourself in a place you didn't think would be for you. I also believe that part of the regret that someone would feel that about their eternal destiny and the things that are going on, as I believe we'll also recall every time that we wasted our wealth on ourselves. When there's a world all around us that's longing and waiting for us to pass on the blessings that God has given us instead of holding them tightly to ourselves. The point Jesus is making, first of all, there will be a judgment. Heaven and hell are real places and everybody is destined for one place or the other and it's permanent. There's no second chance. There's no reincarnation. There's no mulligans. There are no do-overs. Your decision is permanent when you get there. And the choice you make now, the choice you make on earth, it determines your earthly destinations. So at the moment you take your last breath, your spirit will leave your body. And at the moment you take that last breath, you will move to the place that you determined was your God. So was it you or was it God Almighty? And were you willing to bend a knee to him and say, I need your help? This is so sobering. And then look at what Paul says about this in Second Thessalonians. He says, when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven, he will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God, And on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus, they will be punished with eternal destruction forever and separated from the Lord and his glorious power. So I just want to ask you today, am I relying on my own works, on my own efforts, on what my culture says would make me acceptable, what I've determined in my own mind makes me acceptable, or have I been willing at some point to bend a knee before God and say, God, I need your help? I need you in humility to come before him. I'm going to give you a chance today. If you want to make that choice, you would make that at the end of our time together. But the second point I want to bring out about how to live a life without regret is this. I need to remember the purpose of money and share it freely. I need to remember the purpose of money and share it freely. He was speaking to people who saw the purpose of money was to be used for their own gain for their own enjoyment, for their own comfort, and really for their own waste, as they would use money in that day as he would come to his closet and he would look there and he'd say, I'm going to wear purple today, as he would go out at his gate and he would see Lazarus laying outside of his gate. He did nothing, the Bible says, as he saw Lazarus every day outside of his gate. I believe that what happened, though, is that over time, he may have walked out and seen Lazarus one time. He may have walked out and seen Lazarus a second time. He may have walked out and seen Lazarus a third time. And maybe the fourth time he walks out, he no longer sees Lazarus, but he sees just another stone laying beside the road. And that's what happens to us if we don't respond to the needs that we see that God's called us to meet is we lose our ability to see the pain around us, the suffering that's around us. He's asked us to help with. See, the rich person didn't notice this poor man's needs, let alone do anything about them. He consumed his resources fully on himself and his pleasure and his status. The rich man overlooked Lazarus, and the way that you and I overlook things again and again in our lives. He just accepted the fact, this is my challenge for me personally, he just accepted the fact without question that it was all right for him to walk around in purple and to have luxury and silk undergarments while those around him had nothing, that it was okay to do that and just accepted that as all right and okay. It never dawned on him that if he were able to change his living style and his circumstances, that he could help alleviate the suffering for at least one person if he would just do that. Folks, 2.6 billion people and our world today live on less than two dollars a day. Think about that. Think about that for us. We live in luxury. I, there's probably nobody in this room who would make less than two dollars a day. 2.6 billion. That's our world. And I wonder, I just wonder how God is going to hold me, I'll just say me accountable someday because I've learned to overlook those who have so little so that I can satiate myself with the pleasures of this world and what it offers. I wonder how much we throw away in our culture, that if people that make two dollars a day could just follow behind us and take our throwaways, that they would be rich in their eyes, in the eyes of their neighbor's. So Jesus teaches this parable. as just an outright uh, assault on the way that people use money in this world. And he teaches that so we can learn from that. In fact, how how does he want us to use money? Well, look at 2 Timothy. It says this, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. See, money will tell you this. Money will tell you that if you keep it, use it, spend it, invest it, that you won't lose it. And it will promise you all of these things that you can have, that you'll have the life you long for, but it never comes through. Only Jesus can give you what it promises when you turn to him. And as you grab hold of Jesus, then the money becomes something that you're saying, oh, Jesus, now help me to know how I can share this. And when I share it, I don't get less out of life. I get more out of life because I'm living as he wants me to live. So we have to ask this question, God, what are you doing in this world? And how can I be part of it? And I think one of the great things about our economic recession as a church family especially as a church is we have learned to live on less. We continue to learn around here how to live on less and less and to get more get leaner all the time so that what I believe is as we get leaner that God's going to provide and he's going to provide through you and we're going to be able to have more opportunities to share with the needs of those who need us in this community and the world as we do that. But Jesus tells this story just to just to remind us we can't walk by those who have needs. And we can't just pretend they're not there. We must show we care by giving. And then the last thing is this. If I live a life without regret, I need to remember the power of God's word, the power of his word. So I need to speak it boldly. I need to speak it boldly. So the rich man said to Lazarus, he says, hey, you know what? Send send to Abraham, send Lazarus over to my family and uh, tell my five brothers about what's going on. And Abraham's response was, well, Lazarus doesn't need to go. They already have the prophets, Moses and the prophets. So in other words, what he's saying is they already have God's word. And God's word is everything needed for someone to understand their condition. It's right here. And He goes on to say, well, that's not enough, Abraham. Abraham, they'll only believe if they see a miracle. So if Lazarus was to go to their house and come back from the dead... Then Abraham, they would surely believe. And then Abraham answers again. He says, they already have everything they need. They have the Moses and the prophets, and they won't even believe if someone is raised from the dead. And this is another reason why I think that Jesus made a fictional character name up and gave the character's name Lazarus, because people remember Lazarus in John chapter 11, who he did raise from the dead. And as Jesus called Lazarus from the dead, and there's a miracle right before their eyes, it said that some believed in Jesus, but it said that those who he was speaking to at this moment, they chose to say this is our moment. Now we must kill him. They didn't believe in him. They said, we're going to kill Lazarus and we're going to kill Jesus too. And the point is, is that people in our world are not going to believe because we can perform miracles or that we raise people from the dead. But people will believe as we're able to speak the word of God as we know it, as we've learned it, as we've memorized it, as we've planted it in our hearts, into ordinary life, into the ordinary world, God's word never comes back void. It pierces the heart. It shows the darkness inside so that someone's heart can be changed. There's power in his word. Look at what Peter writes about this whole thing about the power of God's word and how important it is that we use his word in our world to help people understand who God is. He says, you have been born again. But not to a life that will quickly end. your new life will last forever, because when it comes, because it comes from the eternal living word of God. As the scriptures say, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord remains forever, and that word is the good news which is preached to you. Now, as I was doing my study this week, I ran across a person whom God's word made a tremendous difference. And it was the difference was made through this story of Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man and Lazarus. His name's Albert Schweitzer. Got a picture of him for you. There's Albert Schweitzer. In 19, um, I believe it was 1905, he was 30 years old, and he had already. You got to know this guy is a Renaissance man. I mean, he was a master musician, a genius. Uh, and by the age 30, he has a, a Ph.D. in philosophy. He has a Ph.D. in theology. Uh, he's written books. People are following him. They're clamoring for him to be their next speaker at the you know, conferences of their day, and that uh, he's in the fast track to be someone of influence in his world, and then at age 30, he's studying his Bible And he comes across this story of the rich man and Lazarus. And here's what happened to him. As he read this story and he was meditating on it, he prayed and asked God to show him from this story what he wanted wanted him to know. And here's what he heard. Literally heard from God in his heart that God said to him, Albert, Africa is the Lazarus of this story for you. Europe which he was part of is the rich man. Africa has great need for medical help. Europe has all the medical help that the Africans actually need but they won't give it to them. I want you to take medical help to Africa as the rich man going to Lazarus. And so he goes to his family, goes to his friends and say, "Hey, God's called me to do this." And they're all like, "You're crazy." You're on the fast track. You're gonna be one everybody wants. You look at what all you can have. Look at who you are. And he says, no, this is what I wanna do. So he goes and he says, okay. He goes to his mission organization and says, God's called me to be a missionary, a medical missionary to Africa. And they said, well, you're not a doctor. You can't go. 30, age of 30, already has two PhDs, goes back to college, spends the next seven years and then gets his doctorate and becomes a medical doctor. And age of 38, see you're never too old, guys. Age of 38, he goes to Africa for the first time, and he starts a clinic there. And that clinic, that, and then he takes care, over the years, he you know, operated on thousands of Africans. He helped hundreds of Africans with leper, leprosy. He helped you know, scores of Africans through African sleeping sickness. In 1952, he got the Nobel Prize for the impact that he was having in our world. He spent 42 years in Africa giving himself away. And I think that's what God would say to us today. Where where does he want you to go? Where does he want you to go? What does he want you to do to share his love in this world? He wants us to do something. I know that. Let's pray together. Father, first of all, I just want to pray for every person who's never been a knee to Jesus Christ. They've never been a knee to God. And the first thing I want to do is just give everyone an opportunity right now that if you want to say yes to Jesus, you want to say, oh, I didn't know that, you know, I could breathe my last breath today. Life is not a given. And that my eternity is determined by my earthly choice. It's not up to chance. It's not up to some kind of, you know, grading curve system. And so today I just want to say yes to Jesus. I want to nail it down if it's, it's, you know, if it can be done. I want to say yes to him today. I want to bend a knee right now and say, Jesus, as much as I understand it, I turn my life over to you. I receive the forgiveness you made possible on the cross. I want you to be my healer, my deliverer, and the leader of my life. I want to follow you and be your servant every day of the rest of my days. God, I pray for all of us today that you would help us to know uh, where you want us to be talking to people about the permanency of eternity. How urgent you want us to be that everyone we run into is just one breath away from that eternal destination. And God, I pray that you would show us where you want us to give, where you want us to share, how you want us to help. And then, Lord, I ask for boldness, that we just bring your word. We'd sprinkle your word into conversation wherever we are, because your word does not come back void. And we trust your word to be what brings people into their understanding of you, and that we don't have to be the ones who coerce It's not by our might, it's not by our, our power, but it's by your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.